0: Welcome to the 121st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Jay Fear, Gabe Brown, Christine Nichols, and Joshua Ducart believe that when it comes to farming, we've come to accept that our soil is a degraded resource, something that will always need to be propped up with chemicals and physical structures such as terraces and grassy waterways to keep it productive enough to produce a decent crop. Such a band-aid approach to managing the soil may produce food for the foreseeable future, but it's not sustainable in the long term. The ability of soils' billions of organisms to cook up their own fertility is diminishing under such an artificial system which has led to a vicious cycle where our humus has become increasingly dependent on inputs and extreme conservation measures. It doesn't have to be this way. Fuhrer and his colleagues are part of an extraordinary team of farmers, scientists, and natural resource professionals who are working together in south-central North Dakota to not just keep soil from being eroded away, but to go one step further. The team, which is based in the Burleigh County Soil and Water Conservation District, is proving that diverse farming systems based on cover crop cocktails that include as many as 20 species, mob grazing and a minimum tillage can make it possible to improve soil quality and thus provide it the tools to build its own fertility. These folks are also proving that improved soil quality isn't just good for the land, it's good for the economic bottom line and can help keep farms and ranches financially viable long into the future. All this work on improving the resource is steeped in the philosophy of holistic management, a decision-making framework that has helped farmers, ranchers, entrepreneurs, and natural resource managers from around the world achieve a triple bottom line of economic, environmental, and social benefits. This framework is built upon the idea that all human goals are fundamentally dependent upon the proper functioning of the ecosystem processes that support life on this planet. Water cycling, mineral cycling, energy flow, and community dynamics. Improving soil quality fits in this system. Burley County's work on making soil quality improvement the epicenter of a farming system has caught the attention of farmers, scientists, and natural resource professionals. I recently attended the Burley County Soil Health Tour, an annual event that attracts people from the Midwest, across the country, and even abroad. On the tour, we saw how farmers and ranchers in south-central North Dakota are literally feeding bacteria and fungi, helping soil do the kind of dark, important work that is so key to a sustainable agriculture. After the tour, I talked to some of the key members of the Burleigh County Soil Quality Team. I talked to Jay Fear, who's a district conservationist for the Natural Resources Conservation Service in the area. I also talked to Gabe Brown, a crop and livestock farmer who has pioneered cutting edge soil improvement systems, and Christine Nichols, a soil microbiologist with the Northern Plains Research Station. I also talked to Joshua Ducart, Who's a certified educator in holistic management and who works with the Burley County Soil Conservation District. First I talked to Fear about how all this work on soil quality started when people such as himself stopped accepting soil as a degraded resource.
1: I think initially um, our our team was uh, like a lot of other people in agriculture and like a lot of people within NRCS, uh, I think we had accepted a degraded resource. When you accept a degraded resource, you generally work from the viewpoint of uh, minimizing the loss. And so we would apply uh, practices. Um, as an example, I applied a lot of uh, sod waterways to cropland water erosion in the 1980s and early 1990s. And truthfully, in retrospect, uh, very few of those waterways were actually needed. Our, our primary issue was uh, we were not able to get the water into the profile and we had uh, extensive tillage and low crop diversity no cover crops little to no livestock integration onto our cropland so consequently due to the tillage we had removed the pore space from our soils and we had compressed them and that made it very difficult for the water to find its way into the profile and made it very difficult uh, to increase the water holding capacity, uh, for instance, in a four-foot profile. As we uh, went down this road of soil health, we started to discover more and more that soil health meant restoring the full function of the of the soil and re- restoring the water cycle and the nutrient cycle. A- and all of these things started to come to play. And then we found, uh, of course, that we could go ahead and put the pore space back in the soil then we found we could improve the infiltration dramatically by doing this. And as we as we uh, increased the crop diversity, uh, we found that the soils responded again in kind. Uh, soil organic matter levels had a slow upward trend to them. And I think then uh, at the same time we started to uh, place the grazing systems onto the land. Uh, we went from season-long grazing to two, three, four pasture systems. And then on the cropland, uh, we started to use the cover crop combinations in 2006. And we started expanding our amount of pastures on the rangeland. So these things were happening simultaneously on the cropland and the rangeland. And until they kind of evolved to where we're at today, where we have a uh, Grazing systems, it's not uncommon for us to have a 15 or 20 pasture system in place uh, with high recovery time, and it isn't uncommon for our cropland farmers to be using all four crop types in their annual crop rotation, and at the same time uh, bringing in cover crops to extend the sunlight harvest, because we used to terminate all sunlight harvest at harvest time. So there was no green plant, no live root uh, after harvest. Now we look at it more from the viewpoint of how do we harvest more sunlight, and that sunlight, of course, going through the plant, evolving to the soil, uh, ultimately results in more carbon in the soil, and and carbon is the currency of exchange. So so all of these things kind of kind of came out of failure in a way uh, because we had so accepted a degraded resource, and as we as we uh, started to evolve out of that and learned that we could actually uh, improve soil health, bring back the functioning soil, uh, it it got very exciting. And and as we went down that road, uh, this whole county, uh, the farmers, the ranchers, um, the soil district employees, the NRCS employees, the soil district supervisors, we kind of went down it together as one team. It got excited, and, and we fed off of each other and learned from each other.
0: Next, I talked to Gabe Brown gave me a tour of his farm near Bismarck. He described how it was actually a series of crop failures that led him to move beyond his conventional system and develop an innovative system that integrates conservation
2: tillage, diverse cover cropping, and mob grazing. Till and We purchased this operation in 1991, farmed conventionally for two years. Then in 1993, I had a good friend in the northern part of the state who convinced me we thought at that time our, our limiting factor was mainly moisture. And somewhat time, so he convinced me to go no-till. So we sold all of our tillage equipment, and bought a no-till drill. Went 100% no-till then in 1993. Well, spring of '94. We bought it during the winter of '93-'94. That was first couple years. Uh, We were primarily still raising mostly small grains, and and crops were good. And I thought, oh, this this no-till really works. We did diversify a little bit. Added field peas in 1994. Then 1995 came along. Our main crop was spring wheat. We had 1,200 acres of spring wheat in. The day before we were going to start combining, we lost 100% of our crop to hail. We had no crop insurance because it just never hailed on this place. It had only hailed once the previous 35 years in just a small amount. So we lost all of our crop income that year except for the peas, which we had already combined. And that was pretty difficult on a young family starting out nineteen ninety six came along and and we liked that we had the peas combine, so uh, we seeded peas again, and it the banker stuck with us, you know we we paid back some interest, but we weren't able to to pay back all the operating. So he was a little more hesitant to to loan us a large sum of money for inputs, but we started to diversify a little more, put in a few different crops. Uh, But we were primarily uh, wheat, because what do you do with hailed out wheat ground? You seed wheat again. 1996, we lost 100% of our crop to hail again. So that really made things difficult, financial-wise. But we did start to see some good happening with the soil, from the standpoint of the wheat that followed the peas looked, looked healthier up until the point it was hailed out. So 1997 came along. We started to diversify even more. We had added corn to the rotation, uh, put that in, and and, uh, uh, seeded some alfalfa acres because we could no longer borrow money for inputs. But 1997 was a very dry year, and nobody combined anything. It it was a total crop failure. So we had had three crop failures in a row. We did start doing some work then on... uh, Uh, once we did get some rain later in the in the fall we were seeding some uh, winter triticale and mixed hairy vetch with it so i started during those three years doing a little bit of the groundwork of of at that time i didn't realize they were called cover crops i was just trying to get feed for the livestock together so we started doing some other things 1998 came along and and by then three years of crop failure things were really tough couldn't borrow the inputs, so we were planting more legumes and uh, things that crops that we didn't have to put a large amount of inputs in. But 1998, we lost 80 percent of our crop to fail, uh, to hail. So we had four crop failures in a row. And I tell people today that that was absolutely the best thing that could have happened to me and my family because we wouldn't be where we're at today on our operation if it wasn't for the adversity that we had in those four years because adversity drives change. We see how nature is reacting to the limiting factors we've put on her and then adjust accordingly. We tend to uh, kinda let nature dictate to us the things we're gonna do. For instance, you know, this year, this past year, it was a real open winter, not a lot of snow, and so we were shorter on moisture since the snow plays such a important part of our moisture in this part of the the state so because of that some of the crops and cover crops we planted uh, were species and varieties that need less moisture you know you have to be able to to uh, read nature so to speak and and uh, plan and replan accordingly and one of the problems I see is a lot of farmers and ranchers today, and I'll just be blunt, they're disconnected from the land. They oftentimes hire crop consultants and the farms are so large and, and equipment's so big, they don't get off the tractor and really feel the soil and look visually and see what's happening. What we're doing here, you work hand in hand with nature. You don't work against it. So you have to be able to be more connected, so to speak, to the land. To the soil.
0: I then traveled to the Northern Plains Research Station in Mandan, North Dakota, and chatted with Christine Nichols about the innovations that can develop when farmers and scientists challenge each other to push the envelope as much as possible. Chris, we had talked a little bit about some really fascinating research you've been doing uh, around soil microbiology, and you are a microbiologist by trade. But Gabe, I had talked to Gabe Brown about this. He had talked about how he was starting to see some results, uh, some positive results in increasing organic matter and that type of thing on his field. And so you came out to the place and you said, yeah, this is great. But you didn't say, yeah, so everything's cool. You kind of pushed him a little bit.
3: Yeah, I think it's been a a fair trade between both of us that we've pushed each other. You know, he He's a a lot of farmers need to have that challenge. They need to have somebody that that looks at it and says, hey, this is great, but we can't stop here and we can take this a little bit further and. I said, you know, I didn't really necessarily know how far we can take it, and I still don't know how far we can take it. But I like the idea of not putting limitations or constraints on a system, but rather just saying, okay, you know, this is great, and we're seeing these results, and it's something that's so unexpected and so amazing. And it's great to see this stuff that I've learned about in school or I've done research on and see it actually happen in the real world. Now that I can see that it can happen in the real world can we take it a little bit further and so that's continually how I think our interplay goes is he'll see something and the producers around here will see something and I'll be like okay that's great and I'll come back and I don't know how many of them know how much time I spend coming back into my office going okay you know really can we do this and can this really happen and and all of this stuff but you know Everybody needs that that challenge to keep moving things forward. And these guys are so innovative and they are so, they so have that desire for a challenge that um, I don't want them to stop and I don't want them to allow me to stop. I think the next step is um, to continue to f- try and find ways to put carbon below ground. Uh, I think that and we talked about this, I think the biggest limiting nutrient in our system is actually carbon and that's something very different for people to think about but as the producers around here and in others across the country that have been some of these innovators, what they've done is they've changed their perspective to soil being the key or the heart of the system and everything else being tools to try and manage that and that soil may be this big black box that we don't understand all of the things that are going on in it but what we can do is we can understand some of the basics of you know trying to get food for those organisms that are in the soil and build that soil quality and that soil health and trying to help those organisms to build some of the structure and soil and the habitat um, so that they can really do the job of being able to help with nutrient cycling and water infiltration and water holding capacity and understand what some of the keys may be to, to pushing that carbon envelope. Um, you know, the things that work here in North Dakota may not be the exact same things that work in another area, but it's the principle of of, of treating the soil as the heart of the system and providing the food and the, the best environment for that soil to function, that's going to be what you're trying to do. Um, so, you know, you, you have to look and make your own decisions on how it is that you're going to manage it. But, again, when you put that soil in the middle, it, it really kind of helps you be able to figure out what the problems really are and what are really the symptoms.
0: Finally, I talked to Joshua Ducart about the role holistic management has played in developing and maintaining this exciting team approach to building soil, farms, and communities. Josh, we were on the, uh, the big soil quality, so- soil health tour yesterday, and we saw some really interesting situations where farmers were um, really bringing diversity into their operations, trying to uh, integrate livestock production and crop production into their operations and uh, really build that soil health and look at that resource as kind of their their core of their operation, which a lot of operations have maybe gotten away from that a little bit, you know, and and have focused more on the monocrop type system. And it was really exciting to see how that they were able to maybe look at something like a cover crop and realize, well, I'm not going to get immediate financial benefit from this, but it's an investment in the future of the farm. It's an investment in the resource in the long term. And, uh, you know, maybe an investment kind of in the, my long term ability to be sustainable on this operation and in the community. You had talked a little bit at the end of the tour about you get a chance to visit with a lot of farmers and to see the kinds of things that they're doing. Talk to them a little bit about some of the frustrations they have and the barriers. And you had talked a little bit about how what's key is looking at the bigger picture and kind of taking a holistic view of what's going on, uh, trying to figure out a way that uh, you're not just trying to go from season to season and and look at, okay, what's going to be our payout from this cash crop?
4: Well, I think just the way you stated it was was very important, that so many of the things that these gentlemen did on the in their families on, on the tour uh, yesterday evening and, and so many that are doing it in the county and, and across the country is they truly are treating it like an investment. And as we all know, most of the things that we invest in, the... There's not necessarily an immediate return. Uh, The return comes later uh, and hopefully uh, comes uh, consistently. Um, throughout the future and and hopefully gets better over time. And when we start looking at soil health and we start looking at, um, quite honestly, the bigger picture, I think investments is a very important part of what we need to do and need to be looking at in farming and ranching. With the soil resource being kind of the foundation to everything that we do and, and providing basically the baseline for, for everything that we grow in terms of food, we need to treat that uh, as... Uh, a a very important factor and and member uh, of the team almost uh, as we proceed forward and this isn't just for the current generation but for past generations and how they operated uh, but probably more importantly for future generations with the opportunity to get on a lot of different farms and ranches uh any given year I have seen a number of different approaches and there's no one recipe uh, that works for any uh, or that works for everyone I should say kinda of the unique uh, customized approach to each one uh, as they have set goals as they have learned more about uh, what nature can offer and, and how we can team with her in our in our movement to not only produce food but to make a profit uh, to have a, a certain quality of life uh, that we desire and to put all of that into perspective. Now, the bigger picture to me means a little bit of, of looking at the model, uh, and, and an analogy is being able to look at the forest first uh, before we concentrate on any uh, one individual tree. The problem is is that so much of the information that we receive and so much of what's advertised and, and just human nature in general is that we can really focus in on one tree. Maybe it's something that we really like, maybe it's something that we consider really important, but we can never take our focus off of the bigger picture because we Truly need to be effective in the things that we do first. Then we can start looking at trying to become efficient at those things. But quite honestly, if we become efficient uh, too quickly uh, on the wrong things. We just go where we don't want to go that much quicker. So the big picture to me has a lot to do with the model that we follow. And the holistic model has proven time after time to be very, very effective, has helped get uh, family members and business team members on the same page, helping them all pulling in in the same direction. And it's just simply amazing uh, how many operations have gone from being fairly fragile situations uh, to being very stable situations uh, when they find the balance of finances, uh, biology, and and, uh, ecological portion of their landscape, uh, but also very much the social aspect and valuable relationships. Well I think there's a there's a number of different variables that have played uh, into this and, and one of those is definitely uh, their ability uh, to to build in management flexibility and I've heard this time and time again with producers as they've uh, gone down this road is that once they're into it a few years as they've focused on soil health as they've started to manage more holistically is now they talk about when when nature or, or markets or conditions throw them a curveball uh, they automatically can jump to plan B or C or D. And they have that management flexibility, and they feel very good about that. Now, that's not to say that they don't have to do their homework and they don't have to study up and, and pay attention, but they are able to know that they have options available to them, and, and that's what takes a lot of the risk uh, out of this. The other thing is that a number of these producers have really taken ownership of, of the low-input, low-cost type approach meaning that so much of what we do is not limited by the amount of money that we have or the amount of technology that they have, but it's limited only by the creativity uh, um, that these people have. And that has grown uh, a lot, I believe, in the last uh, decade or more. And I think a lot of it is attributed to providing uh, support to these people that are that are independent and creative thinkers uh, providing platforms like last night for those people to be able to share what they do and know that uh, there's not judgment placed on what they do but more excitement uh, about how someone else can take uh, a general concept tweak it to their own operation fit it to their own goals and be able to take it home the tour last night was well over, uh, you know, 100 to 150 people. Uh, the first tours years and years ago, from what I understand, you'd have 10 to 15 people. But it has slowly grown, and I think one of the major components to that is having people willing to uh, speak for the resource itself, and most importantly, not necessarily speak about programs or, or speak about uh, cost share or speak about those things, but speak about why you would utilize those as tools. And once you start accumulating people that are are willing to support each other and, and challenge each other at the same time to to continue moving forward, uh, I think that plays a, a just a, a real real big role. And I think it has to do with people explaining uh, not only what they do and and how they do things, but they're really passionate about it. Therefore, they can explain why they do things. And when you explain why you do things, in my mind, you attract people who believe the same things and are willing to. Support you on on concepts on management and, and on moving towards greater and greater levels of sustainability.
0: For more information on Burley County's work in improving soil quality, see www.landstewardshipproject.org and search the keywords soil quality and Burley County. Burley County is spelled B-U-R-L-E-I-G-H. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at Devore at or you can call 612 Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member... Visit landstewardshipproject.org to to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.